Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Tiffany, for nailing that. I always dislike having to follow the children's sermon when it's that good. Um, I'm going to ask Bevan, as one of our ushers, would you make sure that there, everyone has, raise your hand if you do not have one pipe cleaner yet, because you will need that for the context of the sermon and our response to the sermon. So raise your hand and Bevan will go around and make sure everyone has one if they don't have it yet. As you know, we're in a series on Ezra. We took a little bit of a break, um, but in some ways, chapter 6 is the climax of this story about Ezra. In chapters 1 and 2, we see Israel released from pagan captivity to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their way of life. And then they make this long trek across what we know as modern-day Iran, And in chapter 3, we see that they complete the altar and the foundation of the temple right away. So there's great rejoicing, followed by persecution. In chapter 4, the opposition rises up against Israel and and stops the rebuilding. And the Jews are discouraged, and they become preoccupied with some of their own comforts, and they allow the house of the Lord, the temple to be unfinished for at least 20 years. But then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah rise up and they prophesy to Israel. They exhort them to complete the task that they started. It is now time to finish building the temple. More opposition arises, political moves are made, And in chapter 6, we finally see that Israel is vindicated before the Persian authorities. There's this new king in power now named Darius. And he had searched the royal archives, discovered the Edict of Cyrus, which not only allowed and permitted the rebuilding of the temple, but it ordered that the Persian Empire was going to have to finance it. So they're now allowed to complete the temple. Finally, after hundreds of years and this troublesome return from exile, the temple is finished and it's dedicated to the Lord and there's all this joy and celebration that's happening. It becomes a great day and a great moment in the life of Israel. But why? Why is the temple reconstruction so important to these people? All six chapters and 20 years have been moving to this climax, this very point, all along. And now the temple is finally complete. The Israelites have had to live as citizens, then they had to live as exiles, and then they're living as missionaries. Now it's all finished. Why does this matter? These are our big questions for today. Why was the temple so important to Jewish life? And how does this importance about the temple affect us today. So in chapter 6, we discover that despite the enemy opposition, the Jews are now freed to complete the reconstruction of their temple. Ezra chapter 6 verses 14 and 15 say, and the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So we have three Persian kings, 20 long years, and the temple is completed. Why is this so important? 
The temple is of unparalleled symbolic and very practical significance, partially due to the magnificence of its architecture, but also because the temple is central to Jewish faith. The temple can be looked at in a very concrete way for your identity if you are a Jew. It's the place where God has put his name. It's where God's presence is. It's a constant physical reminder that God is with his people and God is for his people. The temple is the presence of God. Sure, there are other reasons why the temple is so important. We know that in the temple there's sacrifice, there's teaching of the law, there's prayer and worship and festivals going on. But this morning, I really want to trace the development of the temple and the, throughout the, how the temple is seen throughout scripture so that we can understand why it's so important in Ezra chapter 6. The temple, um, I think you're a little bit ahead of me in the slides there. The temple does not always take on predictable forms. So the first temple that I want to raise up for you actually is in the Garden of Eden. In the ancient Near East, garden temples were not uncommon. Archaeologists have unearthed their remains. But how do we know that Eden was actually a temple? Well, if you think about some of the basic temple features, what is necessary for you to have a temple? Number one, you need the presence of God in order to have a temple. We've got that in the Garden of Eden. Two, you need priests. And God, we are told that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So you've got Adam and you've got Eve who are priests. You might say priests. Am I stretching that a little bit? I would say no, not at all. In Genesis 2.15, we are told that Adam and Eve were to cultivate and keep, some translations say work and guard, Eden. So that word pairing, cultivate and keep, or work and guard in the Hebrew occurs again in Numbers chapter 3 as a description of priestly temple activities where they're laboring and they're working hard for God's glory. Now you have to remember that the book of Genesis where I'm talking about the Garden of Eden, it was written by Moses, so he's already got this temple-centric view of life that's going to color the narrative of the story he's telling. Adam and Eve are seen as priests in Genesis, people who are laboring for God's glory in his temple garden. You can throw in a few more features. I have a diagram for you. Um, in the Garden of Eden, we know there was an angel. We know that there was an eastern entrance. Would you put that uh, diagram up? So you can see that this would be a diagram of the Garden of Eden, where, but I've overlaid for you also the tabernacle diagram and how they fit together. Eden is viewed as a temple, the place of God's presence. We know this story. It's unfortunate that Adam and Eve actually rejected their temple responsibilities to work and guard the temple by letting the serpent in. If you recall this story, Adam and Eve were commanded to rule and subdue creation. All the animals, they were commanded to worship their creator. But instead, they flipped it. And they're ruled by the serpent. And they worship this creature instead of the creator. They, are allowed the, they allow this deceptive serpent into the garden. They entertain his lies about God. They don't even lift a finger to drive the serpent out. 
the serpent rules over them. So what happens when Adam and Eve trade the serpent or trade God for the snake? Exiled. They are exiled from this temple garden of God's presence. And we say, oh, how? Here they are in utter paradise. They are surrounded by the goodness and the presence of God. They're working in the very best of environments. Life was worship for them, and they messed it up. They rejected God, and they're exiled, and they're banished from Eden. How does a person recover from that? One minute you're enjoying the presence of your very own creator, and the next minute you are banished from the presence of God. But we know God is merciful. We know God is redemptive. He calls out, in a sense, a second Adam, the people of Israel, and he puts his presence among them. It's a pillar of cloud and fire that leads Adam's descendants, Israel, out of Egypt into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a new garden, we could argue, and there's this glory cloud that's hovering over their mobile temple called the tabernacle. Once Israel settles into the promised land, they upgrade to a more permanent temple built by King Solomon. The temple was so magnificent that people traveled for days and from all over to come and see it. On the day of dedication, there was a glory cloud of God that descended down into this temple, into the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary. So now we have a second temple that has all the same features as the very first one in Eden and more. It has the presence of God. It has official priests called Levites. It has an eastern entrance. And guess what? The book of First Kings tells us that the interior of this temple wall, the walls on the inside were carved with angels and trees and flowers and rocks, an echo of the Garden of Eden. Even with the construction science and now they can build a real building, the temple is still retaining its Eden-like character. Why not just build a bigger temple? Why not make it better? Why not go big and go home and, and build the Sears Tower and have a grand urban temple instead of this garden temple? So why do you think Israel would integrate garden imagery into their temple architecture? Why would you overlap creation with their religion? This was a very deliberate choice for them in that God wanted Adam, Israel, and eventually the church to understand that all of life is encompassed by the temple, that all of creation is a, our context for worship, the worship of God. He didn't want them to become religious, worshiping him merely in the so-called spiritual or sacred places, like a temple or a church building. The garden temple concept reinforces that God rules over all of creation, not just in spiritual matters. All of creation reveals God's glory, not just the sanctuary. With God, there is no divide between what is sacred and what is secular. 
We are created to offer a life of praise to God in both sacred moments and secular moments. Worship is never an event that happens only on Sunday or when we sing songs. Worship is to be our entire way of life. First, you have the Eden Temple, then the Tabernacle, then Solomon's Temple, and then we pick up the story again with Israel. And they're in the land, and they're with, they have the temple, and they're supposed to worship God. And what do they do? Again, Israel rejects their creator and worships creation. Do you see the pattern? <laughs> they worship false gods instead of the one true God. We're even told that God's glory left the temple. Israel is again exiled from God's presence, sent to Babylon and Assyria, and the temple's destroyed, and Israel has removed from God's temple God's presence. We know Adam failed and was exiled, Israel failed and was exiled, and 70 long years away from God's presence. And then, out of God's abundant grace, we finally get to Ezra, and God releases the Jewish people, the exiles, to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their temple again. And now it's complete in Ezra chapter 6. Can you imagine the joy? Returned from exile, they're back in the land with the temple, or are they? Have they truly returned from exile to live life as a way of worship and to center their lives around the presence of God? What about us? Are we centering our lives around the presence of God? Do we view our lives as worship? Or do we start to mark off the boundary lines in our world, lines of secular and sacred, lines where we restrict Jesus to this part of our life? Or we don't allow Jesus to be part of this corner of our world, our sexuality, our family, our entertainment, our finances? Is Jesus Lord over your whole life? Or have you compartmentalized Jesus into Sunday morning or small groups? For many of us, Jesus is a spiritual compartment that is restricted from the rest of our life. We view him like a cafeteria tray. Remember these from when you were a kid? We have all these different compartments for the entree and the, the dinner roll and the veggie and the dessert. Many of us restrict Jesus to one of these compartments. Maybe Jesus is the dessert in your life. Or if you're really spiritual, maybe Jesus is the entree. But there are other parts of your life where Jesus is not permitted to be in. Jesus isn't allowed into your work ethic. Jesus isn't allowed into your family dynamics. Jesus is not allowed into your entertainment. We worship him on Sunday, but we treat our family like garbage. Are you feeding your family a dessert-sized Jesus? Do your kids see you connecting Jesus to everyday life? Or maybe you throw away your free time on entertainment and exercise or Facebook. I am guilty. Life is about you and your preference, and you make very few sacrifices to serve others. You have a dessert-sized Jesus. 
This is what happens when we compartmentalize our worship, when we divorce the sacred from the secular, when we divorce the gospel from our culture, when we divorce Jesus from our everyday life. What we end up with is religion. But when you realize that Eden is a temple and that all of creation reveals God's glory, there is no way that you can divide between the sacred and the secular. There cannot be a dessert-sized Jesus or a compartmentalized Jesus. There can be no cafeteria tray worldview. You can't skip whatever it is that you don't like or what doesn't sound good to you in the buffet line. Jesus never intended that we would put into practice some of his instructions while we ignored others. Jesus is no longer relegated to just part of this tray. Jesus is the tray, the whole tray. Jesus is Lord of all, family, work, entertainment, your future. God is calling us to obey him in all areas of our life, in our roles as citizens and public servants, in our roles when we feel exiled, in our roles when we feel like a missionary, as mothers, fathers, friends, daughters, sons, as prophetic voices. Will you worship or will you continue to play around with religion? If we go back to the text, we know that the temple is rebuilt before Christ. Israel is rejoicing. But will the presence of God return, pervading all of their life and gathering the true worshipers? No, it did not. The pattern continued. In fact, Israel fell into sin again, and the temple was destroyed again, and the Romans rebuilt it in great splendor under Herod. But Israel continued to play around with religion instead of engaging in true worship. And so they remained in exile, spiritual exile. And then Jesus comes along and says to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They are appalled. How dare Jesus speak of destroying the temple of God's presence? But that was exactly what was required to return God's presence to God's people. The temple must be destroyed. And what temple are we talking about now? Now I'm talking about the temple of the body of Christ. Jesus is now referring in the New Testament to his body as the temple. The ultimate location for the presence of God was Jesus. Three days in the grave and then raised again. So in order for Adam and the Israel and the church and all of humanity to be reconciled to God and to be released from their spiritual exile and to be forgiven of their sin, punishment must be paid. So either we are permanently exiled from God's presence or we have to go and get someone to endure our exile for us. Either we are destroyed or someone else has to be destroyed in our place. And we know that the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God chose Christ. God was crucified for our sin, for our selfishness, for our idolatry. The body of Jesus was destroyed. Grace chose the cross. And we are told that when Jesus took his last breath, guess what? The temple was torn in two. The temple destroyed. The bitter sweetness of the gospel. 
Judgment for Christ, salvation for us. Death for him and life for us. And this is where the sweetness and the truth and the good news of the gospel emerges because when Jesus died, a new temple was rebuilt. There was a new dwelling place for the presence of God, the church. Peter tells us the church is a collection of living stones with Christ as our chief cornerstone. Together, we make up the new holy temple. We are the indwelling of the presence of God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Individually and collectively, we are the new temple, the place where God dwells. When God commands, he provides. God gives us his very own spirit so that we can live a life of worship. For those who hope in Jesus, all of creation then becomes the context for our praise. The world becomes our place of worship, and Christ calls us to worship him with every square inch of who we are, our family, our work, our entertainment, our finances, and our future. The gospel has no room for a desert Jesus. He is a grand savior, king, cornerstone. His temple was never supposed to be confined to Eden. In the gospel, we have Eden spilling out all over our earth through the church, reflecting God's redemptive reign in Christ, offering grace, offering joy to bring God worship with every inch of our lives. So let's be honest with ourselves. Following Jesus is not segmented into the dessert tray alone. It's all or nothing with Jesus. To have all that Jesus has to offer, offer all you are to Jesus. To have all Jesus has to offer, offer all you are to Jesus. So the best part of Ezra chapter 6 is that now the temple has been dedicated and the people are now dedicating themselves to the Lord. What good is a dedicated temple if you don't have a dedicated people? So no matter where you are in your individual journey, no matter where we are in the history of this local congregation or our denomination, we can trust God to be faithful. Great is thy faithfulness is not just a song to sing or a verse to quote. It's glorious truth. It's something we believe and we have to act on no matter how difficult our situation in life might be. So hopefully all of you now have a pipe cleaner. I'm going to ask the band to come up and get themselves ready, and I'm going to give you some instructions about what I want you to do, because we're going to sing a song in a moment that tells us that where we say to God that we want Jesus to be everything in our life, and we want to live all of our life for God. But before we do that, I want to invite you to shape this into something that represents what has been consuming you lately. What is distracting you? What has been taking up a lot of your time and your energy and attention? When I, it looks a bit like people are done doing that, um, I'll speak a little bit more and we'll pray about that and the distractions, the things that keep us from God. But I want you to take time. I can't preach and then let you leave without applying it in some capacity for the week. So this is your application. Shape this into something that has been, that represents distractions. 
What is soaking up all your time and energy that Jesus doesn't get it?